Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That new search for missing British toddler Madeleine McCann. It's emerged that the search of a reservoir in Portugal as part of the investigation came about after police said they received certain tip-offs. An area has been sealed off near the reservoir around 50 kilometres from the beach resort where the British toddler went missing in 2007. Well, I'm joined by journalist Enda Brady, who has covered this story at length for the very latest on this search. Good evening to you, Enda. You might start, I suppose, by describing the area that has been searched and what exactly has been happening there today. Well, Kira, it's been a busy day and you get the impression that this is a significant development. So this is a reservoir that is 50 kilometres away from Praia de Luz, near the town of Silves. They've gone there today. This is very much German-led, intelligence-led. There is a British police presence there. They will be reporting information back to the McCann family and Portuguese authorities obviously looking on as well. My understanding is there are four separate locations at the site that they're interested in. And you can see some of the pictures there. They've been in the water, they've been on the ground, but very much being intelligence led, directed by German officials. And it would appear that they've had some intelligence or a tip off or information come into their investigation. Now, there are reports in tomorrow's newspapers here in England that some of the information that they've retrieved is that there were photographs allegedly found in a property belonging to this German suspect of the reservoir and that he had previously told friends and acquaintances that this was his little paradise was the phrase that was used. It's not the first time it was searched. It was searched in 2008 to no avail, but they're back there now in even bigger numbers. Do you feel on this occasion, and uh, as I said, you've covered this a long time, that they are more hopeful, that this is more significant than other searches? I think it's difficult to read the German police investigation because they play their cards very close to their chest. There are no leaks to the press. But all the mood music in the UK is that this could be a very, very significant moment. Everything points towards this individual. I think he has been in the frame for almost three years now and German detectives are quietly and diligently building a case against this Christian Bruckner guy. He's 45 years of age. He's serving a prison sentence right now for a very serious offence. And I think what they're trying to do is just find something physical that links him to Madeleine McCann and, and to this lake. But They've got lots of circumstantial evidence. That's our understanding that his mobile phone was in operation in the Praia de Luge area on the night in question in May of 2007. Um, I know the search is, has been conducted on the water, but it mainly has been focused on, on the land around the reservoir. Do they have any idea how long it would take him 
take them to conduct a thorough search of this area? They haven't put a time frame on what they're doing, but I think in all honesty, you know, the, the numbers of officers that we've seen today on the ground, they will be there for some time and there's significant investment has gone in. Remember the Metropolitan Police in London have spent upwards of 13 million pounds on the search for Madeleine McCann. And now this is very much a German police operation being led by German detectives. They have a suspect, he's safely and securely behind bars already. So, you know, there is obviously an impetus now to get something concrete that they can take to a judge or to a prosecutor in Germany and get the ball rolling on this. But it, you just wonder how the McCann family are feeling. I mean, they've just been through the ringer for so long and their daughter's picture all over the front pages here again tomorrow morning. Yeah, and I know they put out a statement only in recent weeks saying that they would search for her forever. They would never give up the search for her. Everybody, I'm sure, who has followed this case, all of us remembered, hoping that they can get some closure. Yeah, they're an extraordinary couple, and I think we've only got to where we are right now because they've kept up the pressure. You know, they've leaned on various different prime ministers. David Cameron, they went and met him in 2010 when he was prime minister, and that resulted in the Metropolitan Police being drafted back in and more investigations. And they've done various different media interviews. They've marked anniversaries. And I think where we are today has come about largely as a result of Kate and Jerry McCann never giving up, being relentless and talking to media and urging people to come forward with information. And it's all slowly joining up now. But the German police, I think, behind the scenes, they know an awful lot more than they're saying publicly. OK, Andrew Brady, thank you for that update. Now, the government is planning longer prison sentences for those convicted of assaulting Gardaí and other emergency service workers. The maximum sentence for such an offence would rise from seven years to 12 years. Well, I'm joined on my first panel this evening by Green Party TD, Patrick Costello, Sinn Féin Deputy, Pa Daly, Irish Daily Mail political correspondent, Greg Hughes, criminologist, Trina O'Connor, former Mountjoy prison governor, John Lonergan, and on Skype this evening by Brendan O'Connor of the Garda Representative Association. You're all very welcome to the programme. I want to start with you, uh, Craig, because there have been a number of high-profile attacks against frontline workers. We're probably familiar with those against the Garda and against nurses. And the statistics do back up that these attacks are on the increase. That's right. Um, and what this legislation does, it simply extends uh, the, the existing sentence there from seven years to 12 years. It doesn't really add anything else beyond that. I guess what it shows politically is that the government feels that they needed to step in to, to bolster uh, the deterrent um, uh, to protect our, our frontline workers, our, our, our guardie. And I think it's, you know, when you, when you look at across the, the doll, you're not going to see much political opposition to a move like this. There had been talk, I think it was last year, uh, from Neil Richmond about introducing mandatory minimum mm. sentences. Has that formed part of this legislation or what happened to that part of the conversation? Yeah, well, it was certainly left out. I mean, when I was talking to sources in the Department of Justice just tonight, they said this was, it was the only change. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see if, if that comes back. But at the moment, this is, this is um, all that's being added to it. All right, Trina, um, I think we'll probably be aware from seeing footage of, of the physical and, and the sort of psychological impact that these attacks have on people when they're trying to just do their jobs. But there's also a very practical side to this too, isn't it? Which is the number of missed days because of these type of uh, attacks. You have some 
facts and figures. Yeah, I, when, when you look at the, the figures, when you look at the amount of days through illness that Gardaí lose, it, it's enormous. You're looking at 40,000 for injury on duty in road traffic. You're looking at nearly 7,000 for um, injury off duty. And you're looking at, for malicious injury on duty, nearly 21,000 lost days um, last year. 21,000 lost days because of malicious injury on duty. On duty. It's substantial. It's, it's huge. Um, and, and when you look at the crisis that we have in our Garda numbers, you see more pressure being heaped on the, the serving Garda that we have there at the moment. So this is, this is a really uh, dangerous tipping point for our Garda. And it's not just Garda, we should say, no, covered by this legislation. It's, it's yeah. ambulance drivers, fire brigade, yeah. nurses, all frontline emergency yeah. workers. Yeah, and you're seeing people in increasingly being out for much longer periods of time. A lot of the time because of the psychological impacts of some of the injuries and some of the abuse that they um, suffer while they're just doing their job. But this increase in sentencing from seven years to 12 years, maximum a sentence of 12 years, it puts it on a par with other pretty serious crimes, doesn't it? Yeah, because it is a very serious crime. When you're stopping somebody who is a frontline worker protecting the safety within your community, then it needs to be, it needs to be treated in, in that way. It needs, but I think there should be a minimum um, uh, sentence. And I think it's, it's unfortunate that's being left out in this because I think that's important. Like maximum can be messed about depending on the on the judge, but there should be a minimum. So somebody knows if you interfere with a fireman or you interfere with a guardian, you're going to get five years or you're going to get seven years. But I also think we need to be looking at what's going on in the background, Kira, what's happening within communities. Where is this lack of respect coming yeah. for for our frontline workers? And that that's a tricky piece that needs to be worked through. Okay, and I want to come back to that, but I suppose I just want to go to uh, Brendan from the GRA who joins us uh, on Skype. Tell us about, I suppose, the, the risk that your members are facing on a daily basis, the type of uh, attacks and assaults that they encounter. Well, our members, Kira, as you know, and the statistics bear out, are facing every, every attack basically from the very basic push and shove, but down to very serious attacks where we've been assaulted with weapons and have life-changing injuries. So certainly, as has been led to, alluded to by your panel there, the cost to society is massive on top of the actual price individual members are, are paying in relation to their, the impact of these injuries on them. So it's a, it's, it's a wider societal issue. We come at it from a certain perspective as a representative of our members. And while we welcome today's announcement that the government are actually acknowledging that there is a problem, we believe it doesn't go far enough in that we didn't have very rarely seen maximum sentences imposed. So we don't believe that we will see the, the, the dividend from the legislation, but certainly it's a step in the right direction, but falls short of what's required. So you would also like to have seen minimum sentencing as part of this legislation? Yes, we have. It's a long-standing policy of the Garda Representative Association to offer mandatory custodial sentences for serious assaults on our members and other workers. That is unfortunately not something that's been produced as part of this legislation. So whether this will have any impact, we wait and see. But as we say, we have never very rarely seen maximum sentences imposed for any offence in the criminal so we're, 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 as I say, we welcome, but we don't believe that it will solve the problem or go anywhere or really impacting on those detrimental statistics that have been outlined. Um, mandatory minimum sentence, what, what figure would you put on that? Six months, a year, two years? Well, I think that's for the legislature. 
judiciary to decide, but certainly we would believe that a custodial sentence, someone believes that their liberty will be taken from them if they engage in a vicious assault on a member of Garda Shikon or any of our colleagues engaged in delivering frontline services to the public. All right, let me just go to my panel here. Patrick, you were a social worker once upon a time. Were you ever attacked? Uh, I was uh, punched once, yeah, once, but only once in, in quite a long a uh, relatively long career so but certainly when this was first floated I had many social workers reach out to me and say look why aren't we included in this and I think if we're looking at frontline workers we got asked does that include a GP sitting in a surgery who's also prone to being attacked so I think there's a broad there's certainly a question uh, to ask about how we draw the contours of this and how far we draw this and who do we include in it because I think there's a lot of frontline workers who'd want to be protected I would agree that this is, uh, as Trina says, this is an attack basically on society. And I look at uh, cases where bus drivers, again, are we going to include bus drivers? Bus drivers get attacked and they don't feel safe and whole neighborhoods lose their bus service because drivers don't feel safe going in there. And I do think that we need to look very seriously and treat it very seriously as an attack on society as a whole and treat it seriously like that. And yet you have been quite critical of this new legislation. Well, I think that there's, there's, I think the idea behind it is good. I, I would personally not be very supportive of mandatory minimums. I think that we are, no, no two crimes, no two criminals are the same. And I think we need to put flexibility into the hands of judges to, to be able to respond to what's exactly in front of them. When we did introduce mandatory minimums before in terms of supply, uh, possession of drugs with intent to supply, if we wrote into the legislation that this did not apply in cases where justice required it not to apply. And we've seen judges be very flexible in how they do that. It has over the years... perhaps that doesn't have the deterrent effect well, that somebody like Brandon is looking years, for. It has over the years massively increased the, the, the sentences people with possession for intent to supply do get, but it still leaves certain flexibility in judges' hands to acknowledge that if somebody has helped an investigation, if somebody has plea, has uh, there's been a guilty plea very early on, all these sorts of things that are important to to, to credit and are important to incentivise so should be in there. So I do think Simon that there Harris should be some flexibility. For legislation, then. It does seem to be a little rushed. And I think the biggest issue is who is going to be included and who's not going to be included. And I think wherever you draw the line, there's going to be a lot of people making the case, well, why aren't we included in it? Why and was it I, rushed? Um, well, I think you would have to ask the drafters in the Department of Justice that. But I think there is, as again, as I say, what I would like to see is greatest, greater clarity on who are the frontline workers. Who is going to be included? If nurses and doctors in hospital and accident emergency room are going to be included, why not doctors in their surgery? Obviously, guards need to be protected. There were two vicious assaults in my own constituency. A guard a car was rammed and two guard were, were uh, brutally attacked in Ballyfermot. There needs to be a firm line drawn on this. And for me, it's about who else do we include or where do we draw the line? OK, so you don't agree with the idea of mandatory minimum. Do no. you agree with this idea of a maximum sentence of 12 years? I do think that we should be increasing the sentence, yes. The maximum sentence, yes. All right. Uh, John Lonergan, what do you make of this? I'm in favour of it. I, I, I don't think there should be any distinction at all. I, and I can't understand why one assault is regardative to the guard or a nurse or... I believe any citizen is entitled to the full protection of the state. 
And if anybody out there is assaulted in the same level of violence, using the same level of violence, it should be treated the same. Uh, and they, they, uh, you don't we, think that these workers deserve special protection? These are people I, I, who I are think, trying to just carry out a I, difficult job and difficult. I, I, I think we're already seeing some of the consequences of of trying to decide one crime, uh, one assault is more serious than this, or because it's a certain person. I believe that it should be on an equal basis, and I'd be very strong on violence. Absolutely no tolerance for violence at all. I think prisons are full of the wrong people and I, I'd be totally in support of, of judges who impose stiff sentences on people who assault anybody. Violence against another human being is totally unacceptable. And the final point here I want to make is that it's so important that people who carry out uh, behave, uh, behave like that suffer the consequences. It's about accountability and responsibility. If you do something wrong, there's a price to pay. And Irish society at the moment has gone very weak on that. And a lot of people who do wrong are not suffering the consequences. And it's a fundamental, even in parenting, if you do wrong, you pay the price. And pay the price is a stiff sentence of imprisonment for any assault on anybody. Does a long sentence like this, you know, a jump from seven years to 12 years, does it act as a deterrent, do you think, for those who might carry out these assaults on frontline workers? Generally speaking, it has a minimum benefit in terms of deterrence, simply because at the time when the person is carrying out the act, he or she is not thinking about, well, listen, if I'm caught, I'm going to serve 12 years or whatever it is. That's just in... in, in but for lots of people, it is a deterrent for the people who don't normally be involved. But the one thing it does is it, it, it makes sure that the person pays a big price for his uh, behaviour. And, and it's generally men that behave like that. Uh, now, the, the, and the other reason, I, or other words I'm saying, I'm in favour of a certain flexibility for the courts, and in, only in one case, and that's where somebody who has a serious, genuine mental health issue would be involved because you have to make allowances for that. But alcohol and drugs and other uh, substances that, that generate this behaviour, that's not an excuse and it should never be tolerated as an excuse. Should there be minimum sentencing here? I'm, I'm a total believer in the, giving the courts flexibility. They are the people, the experts, and they have all the evidence. And, uh, but, but, but I do think they do need to come down very hard on violent crime. Absolutely. OK, uh, I'm going to come back to the issue of, of prisons and who is in prison and who shouldn't be in prisons. Padilly, what's your thought on this? Yeah, well, obviously there has been a number of uh, violent attacks on uh, frontline workers over the last very high-profile ones. And uh, I thought it was interesting um, what you said in your opening statement about the, the government is planning to do this, but I don't really believe that that is the case. I don't think they've put enough work uh, into planning it. it, it would be into in this a, particular legislation? In, into this particular legislation. For, when the Non-Fatal Offence Against the Person Act came in in 97, it was 25 years and the maximum penalty was five years and they were increasing that to seven. Uh, now, I spoke to some members of the Guards earlier on today and they weren't convinced that it's going to be a deterrent. And... Uh, there's an implication in what is being stated by Minister Harris that the courts haven't been taking these type of attacks seriously. And in my experience working in the courts, they took those type of cases very, very seriously. And people who were charged with uh, or who were involved in assaults on frontline workers often faced more charges, faced more serious charges, and the penalties were higher because it was and is an aggravating factor in dealing in sentencing the case. And I think... Uh, you so know, what do you think is the motivation then? Because there seems to be a lot of people questioning whether this particular legislation and this increase in the sentence is going to work. Well, if, if there was a genuine deterrent and if that was going to work, I think that some study should be done on it. Professor Tom O'Malley, I think, uh, in, uh, a fortnight ago, uh, said that if they are increasing sentences, that there should be studies provided to make sure that that is the case. 
We did, of course, have the disagreement between the Taoiseach and uh, the head of the guards, Drew Harris, last week about whether they had enough resources or not. Uh, the government obviously wants to be seen to be tough on crime, and we have had Fine Gael, Justice Minister, for, for the past 12 years. But what's the legacy of that? And the legacy is you have low morale within the guards, you have a crisis in recruitment. They were supposed to increase the amount of guards on the street uh, by 1,000 this year. They have taken in about 280, and uh, so that they do the maths on that. They are not going to, with the, mm. with the increase but, in resignations and retirements, they are, they are going to be well short of that. In fact, guard numbers, guard numbers will, I just finish, on, will go down more than yeah. likely, and it'd be more in the government's line to do something so that guards feel safe on the front line with enough but, members on the unit yeah, that they have the, backup. The, the, the government would argue this is them doing something for the Gardaí so that they feel that they are going to be protected by the state and that might actually encourage more people to join the force because they won't go in there and feel as vulnerable as they do now. Yeah, but on a more practical level, the best thing to do would be uh, increase Garda numbers so that you're, they're not going out into vulnerable positions without the necessary backup. Uh, Garda morale is, is probably the worst that I've ever seen at the moment and that this, yeah. you know, it's... They, the, the guards that I speak to say that it's a step in the right direction, but they're constantly working with someone looking over their shoulder. They're under pressure and they feel, I don't think this is going to solve it yeah, for the, them. There is another question, isn't there, John, in terms of prison capacity in this country, sending more people to prison for longer periods of time. We've read extensively about prisons in this country being beyond capacity at this point. Prisoners sleeping on mattresses and floors. Yeah, Is that a real cons consideration that perhaps the government has not thought of at this point? Um, uh, there's a few points. The first thing is that uh, overcrowding has been in existence since 1969. It's hard to believe that. But that started in St. Patrick's Detention Centre in 1969 when it became overcrowded. And ever since, it has been a problem. We've increased the prison uh, capacity, as they call it now, uh, by uh, two or over 2,000 places. And now we're still in, in 2023 uh, overcrowded again. We'll always be overcrowded on the basis that, uh, you know, if you have spaces, they'll be filled. What's needed is a, a capping on numbers, first of all, and then a prioritisation of those... So not just building extra prisons? It's a waste of money and it's a waste of time because it doesn't... We just continuously have overcrowding. Uh, but, but what the point I'm making is, and, and in fairness, uh, this is, in, is implemented on a fairly wide basis. Anybody who has been convicted of a violent crime serves their full sentence. And I would never, ever argue differently. There are other people that you can certainly re release back into society with a certain amount of safety and certainty. But people who commit violent crime and assaults should never get out early and they should serve their full sentences. And that's the strongest message that you give to people uh, and to reassure guards and everybody else. So no 25% off for good behaviour? Well, no, they are entitled to statutory emission. Yeah. I'm in favour of that because it's a carrot and stick thing. It does, it's a carrot to encourage people to behave, but it's a stick for the governor of a prison to be able to remove part of it as a punishment for bad behaviour. So the remission fulfills a very positive role. But, but early release and overcrowding contributes to the ad hocery of releasing people, which is totally undermining the credibility of the prison service. So the prison service will continue to be overcrowded until we, such a stage as we cap the numbers and stop sending people to prison for two and three and four and six months. 2,500 people in 2021 went to prison serving less than 12 months. That is an, an outrageous amount of people. Put Why is prison. that? Why do because you think that? Because we use prison so often for minor offences in the district courts. People are sent for one month, two months, six months, nine months. Remember, 12 months is actually nine months in reality. Now, what's going 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...to change in nine months. A lot of those people should be diverted somewhere else and the 12-year people should be kept in prison for the full time. All right, I just want to go to one other point, Trina, which is, I think, a, a bigger question that we haven't tackled in this country is why? Why are we seeing an increase in attacks on our frontline workers. There was a time in this country yeah. where you respected people in the frontline. What's changed and, and why as a society are we allowing that? So, so there's a lot of things going on. I think even when you look economically at the cost of putting people in prison for nine months, for example, you're looking at for a 12 month period about, I think it's about 85,000 euros. Like if you look at communities lacking in resources, if you've got 10 young people in a community who are causing issues who might need intensive intervention, you can recruit and put in um, youth work navigators there. If you put five in, you can probably work with maybe 50 young people. So economically, it makes more sense to put resources into communities for but I early I'm just, intervention. I'm just wondering what's changed over the last 20, 30 years, because I don't know if those communities would have had that early intervention 30 years ago, and yet people still respected the guardie or your nurse or your bus driver or whatever. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what's changed is we, we've got a lot of freedoms now that we didn't have before so societally we've changed a lot so people have a lot more freedom additionally social media seems to have a really bad impact on how people view frontline workers mm. because you can see a lot of videos that are snipped and capped and that kind of thing and um, in terms of the whole community policing side of it that seems to be lacking i know we hear all the time we have enough resources but with the recruitment crisis that we have in the guards we do not have enough guardy on the beat making relationships within communities. Um, if they do make, uh, make relationships with young people, sometimes they're moved on into different areas and all of that really good work is lost and the community is lacking again. OK, Craig, just uh, very briefly, um, this is sort of another kind of fairly high-profile attention-grabbing uh, piece of legislation from Simon Harris in his dying days as uh, the Interim Minister for Justice. How has he used the last um, six months to position himself within Fine Gael? I think you only need to look, look back to last week where he came out 
almost hours after the Taoiseach said there wasn't enough guard resources and immediately uh, contradicted that point of view by, and, and saying that there were. Um, that was also backed up by two other cabinet ministers. So I think he showed his teeth a bit there, showed that he, that he wasn't afraid um, uh, to speak up against the Taoiseach of, of, of all people. Um, I think he's probably been in, in the news more so for, for the justice portfolio than he has his other one, the further in higher education. Um, and I think he has impressed his, his Fine Gael colleagues, um, but I don't think he'll be uh, meant to get uh, any time soon, the, mo the much speculated any time soon. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Trina, John and to Brendan for joining me on that discussion. Next, it's only May, but budget talk is underway already. We discuss next. Green Party TD Patrick Costello, Sinn Féin Deputy Pa Daly, Irish Daily Mail political correspondent Greg Hughes are all still with me and I'm also joined by economist Austin Hughes and on Skype this evening by Colette Bennett from Social Justice Ireland. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Craig, I'm going to start with you. 140 days until Budget 2024 but there's been quite a bit of kite flying over the last week or so, again today in the Dáil, most of it driven by Fine Gael. Yeah, and I think even go, go back a step to, to earlier in the week where you had, had three Fine Gael junior ministers writing in a national newspaper about, about what they think um, should be contained in the budget. Um, you know, a thousand euro tax breaks for, for earners on, on, on 52,000 euro. And what I found quite extraordinary about this was it's kind of, you know, like they're stating this through a megaphone rather than through their government colleagues. I mean, Michael McGrath is, is the Minister for Finance, he's Fianna Fáil minister. Um, I thought it was quite extraordinary that Peter Burke, one of the signatories of this letter, the next morning on RT was asked, Did, have, you, have you said this to the minister? And he said, said no. So, I mean, it's, it's completely, from a political sense, Fine Gael trying to put their stamp on what they want the budget to be, um, who they represent in the budget. And I think it kind of shows that there's a sense within Fine Gael that, you know, a lot of the their, their vote is shrinking and they're going to be competing with Fianna Fáil voters. So this, they want to nail their, their colours to the mast on this. OK, so they nailed the colours of the mast pretty mm -hmm clearly in that mm. article in the Irish Independent. Mm. Um, but by all accounts, the Taoiseach was aware that this article was going mm. in, Leo Radker was aware, and he also said it, didn't he, at the parliamentary mm. party meeting, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, that the next budget would be about middle-income mm. Ireland, middle-income families and earners who pay too much tax. Why, why now? Why are they focusing on those people? Well, well, I mean, I think when they, they'll probably look at where they are in the opinion polls and, and they'll be basing it on, 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 on data around that and on who they need to target. Um, they'll probably think that, and the, sorry, the other side of this is we're being told every day in the news about this massive budget surplus that we have coming for the next few years. It's going to be very hard to say no to people come budget time. And, that's and it that, is in the programme for government, isn't it, that there would be sort of changes to the tax bans and, and shifts around uh, the centre for those middle-income earners in Ireland. Yes, but, uh, but and, and the Taoiseach has kind of floated this idea of a new kind of special tax ban, and there seems to be a disagreement between the coalition parties on that. So I'd be very surprised if, if come budget day we see that. But I think it's, you know, I was talking to a kind of a veteran Fine Gael uh, former politician today who said that it was kind of politically petulant to do what they were doing. And I can't imagine at a time when the coalition is already qu quite fraught with infighting on so many other issues, it just seems a bit, a bit foolish to be creating another kind of needless fire here for themselves. Yeah, would you agree, Patrick, was this a bit petulant by Fine Gael? I don't think it's necessarily petulant, but I do think it is very much playing the politics of the situation instead of, you know, actually trying to agree a budget. Because now, of course, is the time when ministers are, you know, trying to get their um, 
their department estimates in line and to put across what their demands are and what their needs are. So the budgetary process is beginning within departments already. So I don't necessarily see a, see this as going massively early. I do see it as very uh, a political move, and I do see it as a political move, to, as Craig says there, to win one over on the coalition partners. An Instead unusual approach. Of it is an unusual approach because it should be about governing it together. It should be about trying to deliver on the programme for government and trying to get these things over the line. Um, it is, as I say, just playing politics with it. And I think, you know, what we should be really doing is focusing on where we can improve, where we can maintain our tax system as progressive, where we can maintain it as fair and where we can expand social welfare and ensure that our social welfare payments remain uh, useful, practical and competitive. Okay, and so in competitive, terms of this specific measure, a thousand euro tax credit, tax break for uh, middle income earners, earners of 52,000 in Ireland, yes or no, from a Greens perspective? I think, I think that there's a lot of people who are paying tax, but then get, aren't eligible for grants, aren't eligible for welfare supports, who fall off a cliff edge there. And I think we were better off investing the money into expanding that or softening that cliff edge. If you look back last uh, So widening winter, the tax ban so you don't start paying the higher rate of tax at 40,000? For me, it would be about investing in the social welfare and the support side of things. Instead of, like if you, the example I was going to give there was, if you look at last year, last uh, winter, we expanded, the government expanded uh, fuel allowance to include an extra 80,000 people. So I think the money is better spent by including people who don't currently have a medical card to get a medical card by investing in public transport, which benefits okay. everyone. Because I think that is ultimately fairer and more progressive. Okay, Paddy, what's your position? What's Sinn Féin's position when it comes to tax cuts for middle-income Ireland? Yeah, well, clearly, um, as you said, the, the kite flying season has commenced uh, very early this year and no more than with the uh, statements about uh, tougher sentences for tax and guards. The Fine Gael are repositioning themselves, the party of law and order and tax breaks for what they would see as their core voters. So that's what they're at. Uh, there is, however, merit in uh, looking at tax breaks for people who are, are working and feel that they don't get uh, as much back out of the system. Uh, but and where that, would you that, put that figure? Because that's well, a big debate, isn't it? They're well, saying 52,000. Yeah, well, that must be done in a fair manner. And if we look at the last budget, income earn, people who had income of over 250,000, they got a tax break of eight, they were 800 euro better off, whereas the workers uh, who earned way less than that, such as your healthcare work assistants, your retail workers, uh, your school secretaries, they were not, they only benefit okay, so by, just, by, more, by just, less than 200 euro. Yeah, I just want to get a sort of a clear picture of where Sinn Féin stand when it comes to those people who are earning, let's say, between 45 and 60,000. Yeah, well, what, what we what our priority is going to be in the budget, and we are uh, all preparing our budget of various departments within the party for our, our alternative budget. So what we are going to look at, uh, it has to be a fair system or a fair break for the overall common good. Uh, but it's, so you haven't got a policy for those middle-income earners at this point? Well, it, there certainly is merit in giving some sort of a tax break to them, but we, we must look after the people who deserve it most. OK. Uh, Austin Hughes, do you think, as Fine Gael would say, and middle-income earners have earned this? I think so. Now, if you ask most economists, they'd probably say with unemployment below 4% and inflation, you know, over 7%, that's not a time to be putting more money in the economy. I happen to disagree with that view. And I think there is a case to support 
a lot of different types of households in the upcoming budget. The reality is right across the spectrum, the cost of living crisis has hit households very hard and households that sometimes appear better off uh, to, to, you know, on the face of it are, are struggling because they've commitments in terms of mortgage, car loans, etc. So I, I do think there's a case to be made for addressing the cost of living crisis through very significant and fairly broadly based income tax cuts. I think that's a major element. I think it's also something in terms of social cohesion alongside so targeted social welfare measures. Uh, and, you know, the kite flying season is starting in politics. It started in economics a little while ago, you know, with the European Central Bank, for example, and other institutions saying, you know, governments should be tightening fiscal policy. I think that's absolutely the wrong thing to do in the current circumstances. And for economic reasons in terms of fairness and for social cohesion, I think this has to be a budget that distributes a little bit of this extraordinary surplus. Now that said, you know, the problem so I the, would so have... So what, what do you make of that particular proposal, €1,000 for people earning 52,000. I think that's on I think it's not unreasonable, you know. I I think there may be better ways to craft it around uh, how wide the, the bands are, uh, but I think the critical thing is that we don't get into an auction system where Finnegale says 1,000 Party X, I'm not going to say, uh, says 1,500 and suddenly we're doubling and next round we're all at 3,500 or something. So it, it is that there is the need for a careful, structured way and it would be great if we could have an adult debate about what the right approach is at the moment. OK, I'm going to go to Colette uh, from Social Justice Ireland. Do you agree with us and I suppose with uh, Fine Gael who is saying, look, it's not unreasonable to give something back to hard-pressed middle-income earners? Well, certainly not through tax credits. I mean, I'm old enough to remember last September when there was a, a tax credit introduced in the form of the rent credit. And that was, was I suppose, touted as being €500 Euro for all renters. €500 Euro last year, €500 Euro this year. We see in the statistics that less than half of renters have actually been able to avail of it and the benefit of it is going disproportionately to higher income earners. So we see the very top earners have got an average um, rent credit themselves of about 800 euro just over and those at the very, very bottom, those earning less than 10,000 got an average of just one euro. And that is the nature of tax credits. They tend to disproportionately benefit those higher up the income distribution. So we would be far more in favour of supporting middle and lower income households through the investment in public services. We all know we need more uh, housing and we need more affordable, sustainable housing. We need more healthcare. Uh, what they're saying is, you know, just put more money back into people's pockets. People are under financial pressure and if they are working and earning in this country, they deserve more. You disagree with that? Well, as part of the social contract, everybody deserves more than what they're currently getting. Um, and by investing in public services, you reduce the cost of those services, reducing the cost of housing, reducing the cost of healthcare, reducing the cost of childcare, which can be a second mortgage or second rental payment for many households, would put money back in people's pockets. And it's a far more sustainable way to do it. OK, uh, Austin, what do you make of what um, Clara has to say there? Invest in public services as well. That's I, I, I don't think it needs to be either or at the moment. Um, it, 
The April Credit Union Consumer Sentiment Survey had a special question on how households would deal with financial emergency. And 17%, so we're talking close to one in five households were saying that they would not be able to deal with a financial emergency of a thousand euro. You know, if the car breaks down or something, the washing machine goes, that sort of thing. So there are an awful lot of households, many in different circumstances, who need that extra cash injection. And yes, we all need better public services. And importantly, we have the capacity to do both if we're careful about it. OK, what about the recommendation, Austin, from the Commission of Taxation, which says we actually need to broaden our um, PRSA and our taxation in this country? We need to take in more money not less. Well, they are talking about the longer term. And to be honest, I think that, again, reflects a very partial solution to an issue about what sort of public services we should have and how we pay for them. But I think the reality is if we work more efficiently, you know, we may need a higher tax on property. It may need to be on issues like that. But in terms of income taxes, you know, taxing people's willingness to go out and work you know, to create activity, employment in the economy, that really leads to a massive disincentive and that leads to more difficulties in the longer term. So you get it. We tried higher taxes in the 80s. I'm old enough to remember, you know, the, the disaster that was. So I think we need to be very careful about the sort of policy platform. And I think okay. in this instance, we have scope to carefully adjust taxes and increase public services. Okay, Patrick, your response to that as a, one of the members of government? Well, I, I would agree with what Colette is saying about investing in public services. Um, That's I think, your preference? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Craig, very briefly, um, what did the Taoiseach have to say about pensions today? Another, another kite flying. <laughs> Yes, the teacher was talking about, about changes to the pension, pension scheme today. I mean, that, that we could be seeing increases there come, come budget time. Um, I mean, he's been asked quite a lot about, about, about how they're going to deal with the kind of ticking time bomb. Um, that is pensions. Uh, he seems to have a differing view around you know, that we can solve it through kind of increased economic growth. I think it's one that um, is always going to be very divisive um, in, in, in terms of when you make changes to the pension issue. So I think it's, it's one that will be watched hawkishly by people. OK, very quickly, Pat, I presume you support that increase to the pension. What, what figure would you put on it for well, this year, again, given the fact there seems to be loads of money swishing about? Again, repositioning. the he's uh, Leo Varadkar has probably burnt over what happened during the last uh, election and he's trying to deal with that head on. But uh, I'm, what I'm thinking of is uh, services such as CE schemes, uh, development partnerships, family resource centres, particularly the ones that I know and Karen who do such great work and they have not had any increase in, in effect, 15 years now. All right, OK, look, we're going to have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Pa, to Austin and to Colette for joining me this evening. Next, summer festival accommodation fears. Do stay with us. and Craig Hughes from the Irish Daily Mail are still here with me. Uh, Craig, there was a report in the Irish Independent today about some festival organisers um, having real concerns about the availability of accommodation for both festival goers and their artists mm. throughout the summer months, given the capacity constraints mm. that we're seeing in the hotel sector. You are a festival organiser yourself. Mm. Is, this, is this a big deal? Is this a serious issue? 
I mean, look, if, if you're a festival that, that, that's based, you know, in, in a city, I guess it's more of an issue. I mean, fortunately for us, at the night and day festival that I run, um, it's, it's, it's in uh, Lockheed Forest Park. So we have an, an in-built kind of uh, purpose-built campsite that's there all year round. So, so self-contained. Exactly, yeah. So and I, I think what you might see this year is people who are going to festivals might decide that they actually have to camp for the first time uh, where they might have gone for a bit of extra luxury before. Again, we're quite quite lucky that we have all the input facilities there already, showers, things like that, which other festivals uh, kind of have to bring in to cater for more people if they, if they decide to camp now. Okay, and the festivals who've been speaking out of this mm. said, A, they've got real capacity constraints, mm. but also they're saying hotel costs for their artists or indeed their guests are exorbitant. And we are hearing more and more complaints yeah. about that, not just in Dublin, but right across the country. Yeah, look, I think the entire tourism sector has been impacted by this. Um, and again, look, but the counterpoint to that, of course, is that when you... Um, take more of those beds back, you, you see more pressure being put on uh, the response to try and, and house asylum seekers. So it is a very difficult balance um, for, for the government. Um, so I guess the message would be for people that if you can go to a festival where, where you can camp like night and day, that they should definitely take it up. What sort of measures do you think festival organisers would like to see uh, between now and the end of the year to, to tackle this? If there is serious difficulties accessing accommodation? Yeah. Well, I guess the government could look at, at areas such as providing supports. So, I mean, if festival organisers have to start paying additional costs for the performers in hotels, um, I guess that would be one metric. Uh, but I guess that isn't going to be an overall substitute for the overall constraint, which is making the market very difficult out there. Uh, what is the level of constraint at this point, Craig? Well, I mean, you only have to look at any part of the country. I mean, take even last weekend in Dublin when you had a kind of high-profile sporting event and the, the hotel prices were, were, were exorbitant and, that, and that's all down to, to demand. So it's it, the government are in a very tricky situation at the moment and I don't think there's any short-term solutions that we're going to see, certainly not in time for festival season this year. Because the, the need for those hotel beds is still there. There is no accommodation alternative at this point for the tens of thousands of refugees who have come into Ireland? No, I mean, Minister for Integration, Radhika Gorman, speaking in the Dáil today, I think he said that there's 259 um, international protection applicants who, who currently um, are, are without accommodation. So it's very difficult then to kind of, to kind of lobby back and say that, you know, these beds should be taken over people who, um, you know, for the tourism sector. So, I mean, the, 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 the solution kind of lies in the kind of medium to long-term planning um, of, of more kind of purpose-built accommodation to free up the tourism sector. Um, Patrick, do you have any sympathy for these festival organisers? Absolutely, I have sympathy for them. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think it is a huge problem because it, when we say festival, we think, you know, the, the muddy field and, and Glastonbury, but many of these are urban festivals or are festivals in our cities and towns that rely much more, that camping isn't an option, mm -hmm. you know? So absolutely, I have sympathy for them. But as one of the festival organisers said in that independent piece, we do have to have some perspective on this because we are trying to deal with, again, a huge humanitarian crisis with a, a, a huge influx of uh, Ukrainian refugees that nobody predicted, nobody predicted would last this long. There are issues around supply of hotels in the long term. Um, my understanding is there's about 3,000 hotels in the pipeline, 3,000 hotel beds in the pipeline for Dublin. And many people are saying that's not enough. You know, I think that though I, I, I'm conscious like Vulture Ireland were before the tourism committee and they made the point that while there are, there may be constrained supply, which creates a situation where we can increase the prices due to the, the, the demand, but they warned that 
the hotelier should be cautious doing that because it can create long-term reputational to damages uh, to Ireland as being an expensive place. So is there I think, anything I the government do think can do that, for these organisers well, at I this think, point? I think the, the solutions are unfortunately perhaps is in the medium term, as I say, extra hotel beds being built, but equally uh, a, a resolution either to the humanitarian problems or to the, the housing problems for those seeking international protection. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, my thanks to my guests for joining me this evening. Um, we are um, That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, VMTV. From all the late team here, good night. Take care.